Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. We're at the conclusion. This is the last part of our teaching series on the Sermon uh, on the Mount. I want to see how much you remember. This, I'll start with the easy ones. Who was the speaker? Who, okay, Jesus, we got that. And I'll, the, easy, the other one, yes, it was on a mountainside. When the sermon starts, now here's a new one. Does anybody know what was like the first word in the Sermon on the Mount? You probably know this. What's the first word? I heard some of you whispering it. Say it with more confidence. Blessed. Does that at least sound familiar to you? The first, the Sermon on the Mount starts off with a section we call the Beatitudes. Okay, boy, I spent like hours teaching that to you, and I see how effective my teaching is because we've all forgotten it already. Awesome. This will be fun because Jesus ends his sermon by saying, uh, those who hear my word and think about it and do it are wise. Those who hear my word and forget about it, maybe not you, but somebody else, <laughs> right? Does anybody know what the last word, it might depend on your translation, uh, know what the last word in the Sermon on the Mount is without looking it up? In my Bible, it's the word crash. So he goes from blessed to crash. That's kind of the whole Sermon on the Mount. And what's he telling us about? He's telling us about what it means to be one of his followers, really, to be an authentic, genuine disciple of Jesus. What is it like? What's his kingdom like? How do we get in? What's it like in there? What's the culture like? How do people as Christians live and behave? How do we think? And what differentiates kingdom insiders from kingdom outsiders? It is the most basic, unavoidable stuff you need to know about Jesus and his kingdom. And he brings his sermon to a conclusion and what we're going to read today. And as a communicator, my my living in my professional life requires a lot of public speaking and a lot of communicating. I am amazed by Jesus, the communicator here. He ends his sermon. The only reason I know it's a conclusion is because I could read to the end. I don't know about the conclusion by Jesus giving us a clue. There's no place where he says, and in conclusion, as the musicians come, he doesn't say that. He just ends the sermon, and he knows he's ending the sermon, but he does something different from the way that I usually conclude sermons. And you know this because you suffer through them every single week. You know what usually happens is I say, oh my goodness, I've gone over time again, and I have 17 more points, and I just say them really fast. You can't hear them. You don't understand what I'm saying because I talk too fast. I jumble all this stuff in there, and then we pray. Or... I'm like, I have one minute left to spare. Let me recap the whole sermon. He does none of that. Jesus doesn't add 10 more points or five more points or even one more point. He ends the content. Here's what it means to be a disciple. Here's how you get into heaven. Here's what it looks like. Here's how you don't get into heaven. Here's how you stay on the outside. Here's Here's how we differentiate between a Christian and someone who's not a believer. And then the conclusion Rather than adding other points, singing a song, here's what he says. In, basically, in my paraphrase, here's the conclusion to the message. What are you going to do with the sermon? That's what he says. 
He says, we're going to take the last few moments and I'm going to give you the instruction. You have to decide what you're going to do with the sermon you just heard. Let, let, heard. Let's think about that for a moment. Ponder that. Process through it. And then Jesus says, it's not a multiple choice response. There's two possible ways all of you are going to respond to the sermon. And the way you respond will determine where you spend eternity. Now, that's a pretty heavy conclusion, but that's how he closes the message. Rather than saying, you know what, I got all these notes I didn't get through. He basically says, I've shared with you everything you need to know. I've not shared with you everything you want to know, but it's complete in and of itself. What are you going to do with it? You've all heard it. Now what? And he makes them sit in that tension. And as they're thinking about it, he says, let me play out for you the two possible ways you can respond to this sermon, positively or negatively. And if you respond positively, here are the benefits and the outcomes. And if you respond negatively, here are the consequences and the outcomes. Choose. That's how he lands the plane. So there's a lot of detail in this that I included in the study guide. And if you like the extra stuff and the resources and the, what books to go to or sermons to listen to or places that I drew on or some of the rabbit trails, you can scan it and download it. If you don't, no problem. But I picked a very light title for the message because this is what I am confident Jesus wanted his listeners to be able to answer at the end of his message. Here's this nice light title. How to be sure that I'll enter heaven. How's that for a nice light Sunday title? Light enough for you? Here's the reality. Jesus does not want you to live with confusion or uncertainty about whether you're going to get into heaven. He wants you to be able to know. And he didn't want his listeners to walk away saying, oh, he talked about the kingdom of heaven and it sounds so great there. And how do I know if I get in? I'm going to live the whole rest of my life just hoping that I get in there when the time comes. Jesus doesn't want you to live with uncertainty about that. In fact, if you read the New Testament through, you'll see very clearly God wants you to know for sure. And you can know whether or not you are saved and in right relationship with God and therefore on your way to heaven. But maybe you... And I know I have in my life spent some restless nights worried about whether or not I'm getting into heaven. A lot of them when I was younger. I've told this story before. We grew up about two miles away from a volunteer fire company. And especially when I was in seasons of my young elementary school life, I was very afraid. I knew those verses about the trumpet shall sound. And then, you know, the dead in Christ rise and those are alive. Basically, what I knew in my mind is there's this thing called the rapture coming at some point. There's going to, I thought in my mind, there's going to be a very loud noise. And if I'm still here, I missed it and I'm not going to heaven. And there's a beast coming for me. How my mind worked. Also with the help of these movies called A Thief in the Night. Some of you have seen them and have been scarred but like I have been. If you haven't seen them, don't watch them. But I had this idea, and I'm tell, I cannot tell you how many times in the middle of the night, fire station alarm goes off, and I'm thinking that it's the rapture, and I'm there. And I'm like, my dad's the pastor of the church. So I'd always go, if my dad was still in bed, either we were all good or we were all lost. But I usually felt like if they were here, I was okay. <laughs> now, I don't know if you went through anything like that in your life, worried about whether or not what you thought your commitment to Jesus was actually going to get you into heaven or not. 
But Jesus doesn't want to leave us on a cliffhanger. That's the one thing I want to share with you this morning. My intention today, I hope, springs out of what Jesus' intention was at his conclusion. That all of his hearers would know the way to relationship with him, would be presented with clear choice to make it. And that you can leave this place, every man, every woman, every student, every boy, every girl here today, can leave this place today confident that you know if you're on your way to heaven or not. So if you're already confident, I hope you're a little bit more confident. No. More, what's the superlative? You're more confident. Yeah, you're more confident on your way out. Sometimes I need someone to come along and just remind me of what I already know. But if you're unsure, Jesus makes it very simple. Now, simple and easy are two different things, right? Something can be very simple, but it's not easy. Like someone, hey, you dunk a basketball. Simple, jump up and throw it the thing. I have an eight-inch vertical jump. It's simple, not easy. You know, this week, my, my two boys went to their grandparents in Pennsylvania to go to Hershey Park, which meant there was two nights where we didn't have boys at home, and we were like, I just said to my wife, what do you want to do for dinner tonight? Simple question. <laughs> not an easy answer. So Jesus makes it very simple. I don't want to overcomplicate this. I don't want to say it's all easy, but it's simple. So what I want to do is I want to read the conclusion to his sermon, give you a, a couple statements that I pulled out of it, and then we'll try and unwind this together in an effort for you to be able to be confident that you understand how you can be sure that you have a personal relationship with Jesus, that you're in right relationship with God the Father, and therefore you're on your way to heaven. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 29 Short warning, some of you have been troubled uh, by this passage. It has haunted you. And probably this one and the one about the unpardonable sin are two that I get asked most often from people who aren't sure if what they think makes them a Christian actually makes them a Christian. Because what Jesus does here is he says, not everyone who thinks they're getting into heaven today are actually going to get into heaven. In fact, he says many, in one translation, many people think, if I die today, I'm going to heaven. In fact, you could ask a lot of people, if you died today, the fire and brimstone preachers love these conversations. If you died today, do you believe that you'd go to heaven? You get a lot of people say, well, yeah. The next question is more important. On what basis do you think that? And the answer that comes tumbling out from there we find what our foundation is. Well, I'm basically a good person. I have to share at a funeral today. And oftentimes at funerals, when I hear other people share, you get this idea of what we really think in our heart gets us into heaven. Well, you know, Uncle Leroy was just a friend to everybody and was so generous and he loved fixing things around the house. And I know he's up in heaven fixing the washing machines today, looking down on us. Uh, no. That's not how it works. I don't think there's washing machines. Up, I, I don't know. That's a, that's that's the waste of our time thinking about that stuff. I, mean, I don't really want a white robe and a harp, but you know whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's going to be great. That's not how it works. Nor is it time at the funeral to be like, I would like a moment for rebuttal. Listen, everyone, um, Uncle Leroy's not getting into heaven because it, like that's not the time. But now's a good time. On what? basis do we get in heaven because we're nice and we do good things 
because we went to church and read our Bibles and sang on worship team and preached sermons and know a lot of facts about Jesus, or maybe you're able to do, you have a really good spiritual resume, or maybe you've experienced a lot of miracles and they make you really excited. What gets us, on what basis do we think Jesus will welcome us into heaven? And we've gotten to these verses and Jesus basically says, there's a lot of people who think they're on their way to heaven who are mistaken. And we say, well, I think I'm on my way to heaven. Wonder if I'm mistaken. And we get into this paranoia. I hope you're going to receive some peace today. Because Jesus wasn't trying to inspire paranoia. He's trying to reveal the truth to us. So here's what he says as he concludes his sermon. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many, many will say to me on that day. Now, what day is he talking about? The judgment day. And we do understand that there is a judgment for all of us. We understand that, right? There's a day in the future when Jesus will judge us all. The judgment that unbelievers will stand before the great white throne judgment different than the judgment that believers will stand before. Believers aren't going to stand there biting our nails, hoping that he finds our name. Like, can you check the K's and the N's just to be sure if you misspelled my last name? Like, I might be in both places. Like, we're, no, unbelievers will face judgment for their sin and be sentenced to eternity separated from God in hell. Believers will also face a judgment, but that's where God will, we will give an account for how we used what God gave us for the one and only life that we live in, that would determine our reward in heaven. So those deserve whole series on themselves, but I just want to make sure you understand. When Jesus says that day, he's talking about a day of judgment for those who don't know him as Lord and Savior. But what Jesus is saying is there's going to be a lot of people who show up there who think they're at the wrong judgment. And they'll appeal, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons and in your name, perform many miracles. And all of a sudden we find out people who show up that they think they think they're Christians for a couple reasons. Number one, they know some stuff about him. He's the Lord. We even called him Lord and we said it twice, which in that day was a passionate. Very, yeah, he's the Lord. That's his title. First name, the last name, Lord. We know this. We confess this. Now, question. Do we need to confess the lordship of Jesus to be saved? Yes, but a confession without belief is phony. It's lip service. We don't confess first, we believe first, and we simply confess what we already believe, if that makes sense to you. You can say anything you want and not believe it. Okay. Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? We know your name and look at our resume. We did a lot of good things, prophesied, we used your name, did some spiritual stuff, drove out demons. We used your name when we did miracles. In verse 23, Jesus says, then I will tell them plainly, the, first, the second word here is really important, I never knew you. I'm going to slow down here just for a moment so you get this. What does Jesus say to the person who approaches him on judgment day saying, well, I said you were the Lord. And I had a really good spiritual resume. And on that basis, I should be let in. Jesus says, I never knew you. Does that mean he knew them at one time and then forgot about them? Does that mean that he knew them well and then they drifted apart? Never knew them. This is not a story about someone 
who lost salvation. Jesus doesn't address that in this parable. I will take you through, as we continue to turn together, other passages in the New Testament that wrestle with this idea of eternal security or can we backslide and lose our salvation and wrestle with some of those together. But this passage isn't about that. This passage is about someone who thought they were saved and Jesus says, you were never saved. You weren't saved and then lost it. Never saved. I never knew you. Away from me, you... Now, here's the phrase. You, in, in, the, in the NIV, it says evildoers. Do I, some of you might have a different translation. Do any of you have practicers and practice, those of you who practice lawlessness? Good, okay. I actually like that idea a little bit better. He's saying, he's trying to hold up a mirror and say, you're kind of a hypocrite because on the one hand, you want me to believe that you think I'm the Lord, but you don't practice my will. You practice your will. I can't be your Lord well, you're your Lord. If I was your Lord, you'd be a practicer of righteousness. You wouldn't be perfect. You'd be a practicer of righteousness. Keeps going. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. He's going to give them a story to close the sermon. Here's the two responses. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Verse 25, the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house. And you're thinking, that's not the life I want to sign up for. I thought being a Christian meant no wind, no streams, no blowing and beating against the house. Nope. Christianity does not guarantee no problems. Just means that when you have problems, you've got a foundation. That's durable. And the foundation is... Everything you've ever needed, you got, though you didn't deserve it. The other way says, I hear the words of Jesus, and there's a life I think I deserve. And the moment that life beats that down, I've lost my faith, because I think being a Christian means I put my faith in something I saw or that I heard, and life is about getting what I deserve from God and Him withholding what I don't deserve. And when winds and storms and rain come along and beat down on the house, you have no foundation of grace. So when you don't get your miracle, when a leader lets you down, when your spouse runs out on you, when your pastor fails you, when the church hurts you, I didn't deserve that. I want what I deserve. This Christianity stuff doesn't work for me. That's foolish because you've heard the word. You've heard the word that, listen, it's not about the house you build. It's about the foundation you have. But the houses look the same from the outside, guys. It's the foundation. Both of these people heard the word. Both of these people went to church that day. Both of these people took notes. One of them said, you know what I'm hearing Jesus say? That it's all about grace and not about my performance. I'm going to excavate and dig down. I'm going to dig out the sand in my life and replace it with the foundation of grace. Then I can build my life on it. And if there's no storms that come, great. And if the storms come, it's going to hurt but I still have everything I need that I don't deserve. The other person says, this is why Jesus doesn't say, everyone who sees all my miracles and puts faith in those, when the rains and the storms and the floods come, it won't beat down. Listen, if all you believe in of Jesus is that if you're on his team, he's a little genie in the bottle and you pray the right prayer and you're going to get everything that you want, the first day that it doesn't go your way, your house will fall and there's no foundation. Verse 26, 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice like a foolish man who builds house on the sand, verse 27, the rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against the house, and here's the end of the sermon, and it fell with a great crash. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And it fell with a great crash. I mean, he really covers all the emotions in this whole sermon. I love this. When Jesus finished saying these things, do you see these two words? I never caught this until this time through. The crowds. This does not happen in today's culture. He starts the sermon. Do you remember way back at the beginning? Who was he talking to at the beginning? The disciples. Somewhere between 12 and maybe 50, 60. The sermon starts and there's a little crowd. He keeps preaching and the longer he goes, more people show up. By the end of the sermon, there's crowds there. How good of a speaker was he? The best. No, they didn't all get it. But man, like that's like the reverse of what happens in our context. It's not like, you know, we start, and we have, well, kind of, you know, we start at 11 and then by 11.25, most of you are here. And then as this, there's not more, there's always less people in the room at the end of the sermon than the beginning. You know, it's because you love it so much, you have to run out and just be like, it's just so much. I need to go think about, like, I know, I get, I get it. I got to work on that. But they say they were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had their, who had authority. And not as the teachers of the law. So what do we do with all of this? Jesus is taking out like his ancient Sharpie, all through this sermon, and he's drawing a line between two groups of people. Through most of the sermon so far, you get a line drawn between his disciples and outsiders, between followers of Jesus and people who aren't followers of Jesus, between people of his kingdom and people of the world's kingdom. And through most of the sermon, in fact, you can't read a paragraph of the sermon where he's not differentiating between these two groups of people. And yet here at the end, he gets out a fine-tipped Sharpie. He says, let's just, now he's drawing a line between people who think they're Christians, but they really aren't in Jesus's eyes, and people who think they're Christians and really are in Jesus's eyes. And then he draws a Sharpie between people who heard his sermon and didn't put it into practice, and people who did hear his sermon and they put it into practice. So he's getting an even finer tipped Sharpie as he goes out. And as I hear this, I'm like, Jesus, I just want to know that when you look at me, that you say, Phil Nauer is an authentic disciple. He's one of mine. Because as long as he thinks that, I don't care what anybody else says. But I want to know. I am convinced I am a disciple of Jesus. Why? Because I Deep, I am deeply convinced he is the Lord. I am deeply convinced that I am not. I recognize my brokenness. And I believe that he can save me. I believe he will save me. I've asked him to save me. And he saved me. And my life now looks like an ongoing process of surrendering my will to Jesus on my journey of Christ-likeness. That's why I am confident I could go on. I recognize the Holy Spirit within me. I could go on. I'm confident, but I'm, I'm up for being even more confident. I'm up for being even more sure. So the question that I had is, well, what differentiates an authentic disciple from someone who just thinks that they are and they're not? Because most of us, I, you know, probably most of us today, if I said, do you think you're a disciple of Jesus? Do you think you're on your way to heaven? Most of you would say yes. Then I wouldn't respond, well, how are you so sure? The response to that forms our basis 
And we want to have that right. So authentic disciples of Jesus share three common characteristics that I see here. And I'll just give them all to you, and then we'll unpack this briefly together. First, a will that is surrendered to God. A will that is surrendered to God. Second, a personal relationship with Jesus. Will that's surrendered to God, personal relationship. And third is an understanding, a foundational understanding. My salvation is based on God's grace. It's not based on my performance. It's not built on my house. It's not built on my resume. It's based on God's grace. So let me show you where I drew those conclusions. Verse 21, let's go back to it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we've already agreed because the Apostle Paul tells us, Romans 10, 9, we want to go back. What do I need to do to be saved? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you heard this before? Is it true? Yes, we grab onto this. That's what it requires. But let's go back to what confession means. Confession is just you putting words to something you already believe. You can't skip believe. Believe means to be deeply convinced. So what Paul is saying is that confessing, the type of confession that Jesus hears and that he responds to us with free salvation, it's not just repeating the words of a pastor mindlessly. It's not just covering your bases. It is the result of something in your heart. You said, I know he is the Lord. Now, Jesus says here, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. However, there are others who know him as Lord who will enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's not the confession of lordship that he's going after. He's going after what I would call, a, he just talked about false prophets. He's talking about false confession. People who say with their lips that Jesus is Lord with no surrender in their life. Because he says, the person who he's denying access to here says, Lord, Lord, but does not do the will of my Father in heaven. He says, the person who comes into heaven knows me as Lord and they do the will of my Father in heaven. It's like Jesus is saying here, it's not just repeating words. It's not just grabbing onto some facts from a sermon. The lordship of Jesus has to be a reality in your life. Now let's talk about the will of the Father in heaven. God has a will, and so do you. How many of you have a will? I don't mean a, a last How many of you have a will? How many, do you? You all do. I need, I need your buy-in here. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a little bit bold here. You understanding this is a matter of life and death, so you need to pay attention to this. This is going to make sense to you. You have a will. Now, let me give you a working, not academic. Let me give you a working. That means you have a certain way you'd like things to be ideally. That's your will. Your preference. What you want. The way you'd like it to be. Now, let me help you understand this. The moment your little lungs as an infant took breath, you don't even remember it, but you had a will. And you came into this world not even thinking about this, but let me tell you, and you're, whoever raised you would tell you about this, you thought your will was number one. 
and everybody else should surrender their will to yours. Because guess what? Our wills bump into each other all the time, don't they? Isn't this why we have traffic signals and signs? You know that triangular one with the red on the outside? What does it say? Do you know what that is supposed to mean? (laughs) Get there first. It means someone else has the right of way and it is more important in priority order than yours. You have to fall in line after them. And how excited you are about that sign depends on which lane you're in. Why do we have these signs? Because what we want is always bumping into each other and our world recognizes our wills are going get to get in the way sometimes. And if we don't have a way of figuring out whose will gets prioritized and whose will has to yield to the other one, we're going to be in accidents all the time. Why we have traffic lights. Because we recognize if we did not have them, it would be chaos. Have you been in parts of the world that don't have traffic lights? You just see a collision of wills all the time. Have you ever tried to get out of a parking lot after a baseball game or a football game or a concert where it's crowded? It's a whole exercise in who has strong wills and weak wills. Right? Some of you are the strong will person. You're like, I am just going to put the car in drive and keep moving and everyone will get out of my way. You're usually the one in the bigger car. Or the truck. And you might be the weaker willed person. I'm just going to wait until the very end. I'm going to wave everybody in front. And once the parking lot's empty, then I'll go out so I don't have to do, deal with this whole thing. Strong willed, what we mean when we say you're strong willed, it's when your will is in coming into direct connection with someone else and you're at loggerheads, you're not going to back down. You're not going to conform to somebody else. You're strong willed. They will yield to me. I will not surrender my will. They, I will impose my will on them. Weak willed, we say, we're the ones who just say, Listen, we're pleasers. I'll conform to yours, whatever it needs to be, you know, and that's not always being authentic either. And what Jesus is saying is you were born with a will. There's a way you want things to be. No one taught you how to do this. You just came out naturally saying my will be done and everybody else conform to me. You're, you know, as an infant, I was not thinking, you know, I shouldn't wake up, mom. She's sleeping right now. I'm really hungry, but she needs her rest. I didn't come out thinking that. I came out thinking, Give, I don't care if you're sleeping. Give me what I want. And parenting is this complex process of trying to teach our kids when to assert their will and when to yield their will to other people and other things. Because at some point, I had this delusional idea that, okay, for a period of time, it's going to have to be what the baby wants. But at some point, this isn't going to work. They're going to have to start trusting me as dad to say, my will is that you go brush your teeth right now and put down the PS4 controller. And they just say, Dad, I'd love nothing more than to do that. It's constantly this. Jesus is saying, there's tons of micro decisions you and I make in life, and it reveals to us which Lord's You'll surrender your will to. Question. You have a choice. You can have it for free or pay for it. Which would you prefer? Okay. I'm in there. If I have the choice between paying for something and getting it for free, I hope this isn't rocket science, free 100% of the time and twice on Sunday. 
So my question is, when you stopped at Starbucks on your way in here today, why didn't you pick up your coffee and walk out without paying for it? Why didn't you do that? Okay, the rules, stealing. But your heart says, what my will is, is to have this for free. Right? So are you telling me it's capable, you're capable of saying, maybe here's what I'd, I'd like to have this for free, but there's consequences for me having my will here. I'm going to lower it because you, I heard one of you say there's a, it's stealing, there's a rule. Well, who decided that? Most of us don't know, but there are laws and rules that some woman or man made at some point. And what I'm trying to show you is that you recognize there is at least a standard or a rule that maybe isn't what your heart wants, but you surrendered to it. And you don't walk out of there without paying for your coffee because you say, even though that's what my heart wants, that's not mature, that's not wise, I'm surrendering my will to something else. This is why some of you, you go five miles under the speed limit because, and, you're, and others of you are like, I like the law about take, you know, paying for things, not so much on speed limits. And so we have a complex relationship with these things. Every relationship that you'll ever have in life, professional, personal, romantic, there's these complex, when wills bump into each other, how we respond to that. When what you prefer and what you want is at odds with and is incompatible with what somebody else wants. And in those moments, we make decisions about whose will yields to whose. And I don't want to play pop psychologist this morning. What I want to show you is that this is a reality of your life now. It's a reality of parenting. And what Jesus is saying here is that you can't have a Lord you never yield to. If you don't ever yield to them, guess what? They're not your Lord. If you have a Lord, you yield to the Lord. That's by definition what a Lord is. Somebody you surrender to. I recognize even though I might really like to have everything for free, there are laws in place that I'm surrendering to because the consequences of breaking them are worse than me enjoying what I want. So I'm going to yield to that. There are relationships you're in right now that you are restraining yourself from doing some things you want to do and you're doing other things you don't really want to do because you're yielding to their will because that's the glue that keeps the relationship together. Whether that's healthy or not, taking to extremes, whole different conversations about codependency and narcissism we're not getting in today. What I'm telling you is that this is a part of how we live and we understand this in the real world. What Jesus is saying is, if you think getting into heaven is about coming up and saying, but I called you Lord. I sang that you were Lord. I know all the verses. I've heard them. I've even said it. You are the Lord. And Jesus just says, but I'm not to you because you don't do my will. Every time my will bumps into yours, you say no. You don't yield. You just merge and run over. And that's what he's saying. The person who confesses Jesus' lordship without a desire to surrender their will to the Lord is not saved because it was never a valid confession. He's not talking about someone who says, you are the Lord because I believe you're the Lord and I surrender to you. And 
you're not then perfect from that day forward in terms of following God. Because here's what I recognize. I'm going to put my hand up first. Here's my confession. After I received salvation, I have sinned. Anybody else? I don't have a perfect track record, even after confessing Jesus of my Lord, of honoring his will. And this is where people come to me troubled and they say, you know, but pastor, I, I don't have a perfect track record in following God's will. And it seems to me that Jesus is going to pull up on the computer screen my track record. And the, and the thing I like to say to them, well, the good news is, is that your track record is inadmissible in court if you're in Christ. It's only Jesus' track record. Well, does that mean I can do whatever I want? No, 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 no. Here's what it means is that a Christian responds to sin differently than an outsider. Way back in the beginning, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourn about what? I taught you about this. He's not talking about graveside services. He, he says, blessed is the one who mourns over their own sinfulness. Because what does it do? It produces, them, it produces in them a humility and a meekness that brings them to Jesus and say, Jesus, I've confessed you as my Lord. And your will and my will had a collision and I didn't yield. You've made me aware of that and I'm not okay with it. In fact, I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed that I'm even dealing with this. I come to you for forgiveness to help me grow. Blessed are those who are mourning over their sinfulness because they'll be comforted. Jesus is not talking about that your perfect performance of following God's will gets you into heaven. What he's saying is that if you confess him as Lord, yes, there's going to be times that we're not going to get his will perfect. How can you possibly? It is a process. When I was in second grade and got saved, I didn't know everything having to do with God's will. I didn't know the commandments. I didn't know all the expectations. But I want to give to you right now so that you're not confused. What, what, what is God's will for me? There's a general will. I'll just give it to you basically. Here's what God wants for you. Here's what his will is. He wants you to know him. He wants, to be, he wants you to be with him. He wants you to enjoy him. He wants you to make him known. That's the basic. Every, all the other, those are the ABCs, the XYZs. If you use the ABCs as a sponge, they'll all come tumbling out of that. That's what he wants of you. Does he want me to perform? He wants you to know him. He wants you to be inseparable with him. He wants you to enjoy one another. And he wants you to make him known. That's his will. You know what keeps you from that? Sin and apathy. That's it. You know what he wants? He wants to be included in your daydreams. Or at least not excluded from them. If you're daydreaming about something he can't participate in with you, you shouldn't be daydreaming about that. Can he sit down and watch or listen to what you're watching and listening to? If he, anything that you can do in his presence, keep doing it. Things that you can't do with him along with you, should be cut out from our lives. Now, here's the reality. There is a day when those of us who are going to heaven, when we surrendered. And you know what we're also doing? Every day, we're surrendering. What does Paul say? I crucify daily my flesh. It's a daily battle. Sin clings to the Christian. The unchristian clings to their sin. There's a difference. It doesn't mean that. What it means is that a Christian doesn't aspire sin, doesn't practice lawlessness, doesn't want to be in it, but we struggle with it. And we hate that we struggle with it, and we want to be delivered from it. It doesn't mean it costs us salvation. It drives us closer to Jesus. We say, if I'm ever going to be sin-free, you're going to have to do it. Through what? Cooperation with the Holy Spirit. 
what Jesus is saying here is, the person who knows me as Lord, what happens is this, is when the wills collide, we say, okay, Holy Spirit, I yield to you. What does that look like? There's this thing I want to do. I'm going to restrain myself from doing it through your power. Or this thing that I should do that I don't want to do, I'm going to do it anyway through your grace. We mature into this. We're not perfect. I, I think of the example. My wife is a public school teacher. Some of you know that. She teaches elementary school. Um, she wanted to be in a Title I school in a tough part of the city and with an underserved population, and she had plenty of job offers. And she got that. And I remember her coming home from her first day with her class, and she was just like, Phil, what have I done? It's not really what she said. She's like, look, she's like, so she had all first-year students. None of them had been to preschool. None of them had any home education. None of, she's like, Phil, they don't even know when I say uh, two minutes, and I was like, okay, line up. They don't even know what a line is. They don't know how to form a line. She's like, I, it's chaos. I say, all right, everybody come sit at your seats. No one even moves. She's like, how am I going to teach them anything? We can't even get in a line. We can't. She's like, the rules I've had to make for what I think are common. It's like, they know nothing. I'm not inheriting anything. That was day one. So day 180, it's a different scene in the classroom. Is it perfect? No. But is there progress when she says line up? They put their toys down and they go line up. Is it because they just prefer standing in lines to playing with toys? No. But at the very basic, at that age, in kindergarten, they at least understand this. She's the teacher. I'm the student. And over the long haul, they finally say, on their very, very, if you'd said, if you asked them, well, why did you line up today? What motivated you to conform your little kindergarten will to this lady? They're not going to give you a theological answer. They'll probably say, well, because she's the teacher and she said so. And if I don't, I'm going to miss recess. And if I need things, I mean, look, some basic idea. It doesn't mean that they all of a sudden said, oh, you know what? I really want to get in line. They just said, no, that's the teacher. I will yield my will to the teacher. Are they perfect? No. But we see progress. Christian isn't perfect, but we should see progress. Do you still struggle with sin? Yeah, but I'm making progress. How? I say okay to the Holy Spirit every day. And that means sometimes we have to restrain ourselves from doing things we want to do. And I heard some, well, I'm not going to restrain myself until I genuinely don't want to. No. <laughs> well, God told me I should go and talk to that person, but I really didn't want to, so I don't want to be insincere. You know what you can be sincere about? Obeying. Those little kids don't want to get in line rather than playing with their toys, but they're just, you know what, I'm going to obey. And over time, it's more enjoyable to be in right relationship with the teacher but walk in line than to be jeopardizing relationship with the teacher and playing with the toys. I'll leave that where it is. Let's keep going. Uh, you have to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Personal relationship. Depart from me, I never... I don't have much to say on this because I feel like I've already taught it. You have to know Jesus for yourself. A lot of you were brought up understanding that you couldn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. He was too busy. And so you could pray, but you couldn't pray right to Jesus. You had to pray to his mom, to one of his disciples, maybe to somebody else who had an in with him, and they would take your request. They'd get in line. 
and try and get an answer for you and bring it back to you. And teach you can't have a personal relationship. We just, I've got news. Jesus wants to have a personal relationship with you. In this day and age that we live in, it's possible to think you know somebody because you read their Wikipedia page or you follow them on Instagram or Twitter. You never met them, but you're like, I know everything about them. And they don't know you from a hill of beans. They don't know you. Like I used this illustration in the first service. It's like, you know, I can, you know, I can dive deep. I can learn a lot about President Biden. A lot about him. A lot of stuff out there. Some of it's even true. You can dig into all this stuff. And let's suppose, you know, I, I was going to say I run into him. That really would be dangerous for me. But if, let's just say, you know, I'm you know, making a target run and he's there with the Secret Service and they're just in target. Joe, it's me, Phil. And he'd look with, probably look at me with a confused look, right? And I'm not saying anything political. Please don't put that on me. I just say that in the first service too. Like I'm not trying to make a political joke about confused looking face. We know, you get the idea. It's like, I think I know him because I know his name. I know all about him. I've seen him on the TV and the internet. Here he is. He has no idea. We don't have a personal relationship. Have you ever had those conversations? Hey, do you know Leroy? Oh, yeah, I know him, but I don't know him, know him. You need to know him, know him. That's what Jesus is saying. Depart from me. I never knew you. You knew some facts. You knew me verbally. You have a nice resume here, and I don't want that to trouble you. I'll just... Because some people look at this and they say, see, it's a backslidden Christian. Because these are people who said they had the spiritual gift of driving out demons. And they had the spiritual gift of prophecy. I don't think Jesus is talking about spiritual gifts here. That comes a little bit later in what Paul is talking about. But you can read, and I put it in your notes. There are absolutely places. You've got Balaam in the Old Testament. You've got examples in the Gospel of Mark. And examples in, in the book of Acts where people were quoting Jesus... And invoking his name to do spiritual things when they had no personal relationship with Jesus. And what Jesus is saying, it's not enough for you to just do a lot of good things and even say they're doing them in my name. If I'm not Lord of your heart, then I don't know you and you don't know me. You have to have a personal relationship with me. And the beautiful thing is, you just have to have a personal relationship with me. You don't have to bring to me a resume. Just know me. You don't have to bring a list of accomplishments. Just have to know me. Know me, know me. And he's saying the people that just say, Lord, Lord, but don't do my will, and they do their own will, and they just build a whole resume for themselves and think that's what's going to get them in, they're all about their resume. They don't know me, because if they really knew me, those things wouldn't be the basis on which they come to me. And then number three, he tells a story at the end. Have you heard the one about the wise builder and the foolish builder? You've heard that story before. What's the same about them? They're both builders, right? They both are building what? They're building houses that they're going to live in. And it's a metaphor for the life that they're building, the life that they're living. What also is the same about them? They both heard the words of Jesus. They both heard the same sermon. They were both in church. They both heard the sermon. They both thought about it. But they responded differently. The wise builder heard the sermon, and I want you, they thought about it. It's a crazy idea. You should probably think about the sermons you hear. When you study your Bible, that's why I talk about studying your Bible. Reading your Bible is good, studying is better. You can read without thinking. You can read without considering. Because here's what you'll find. If you study the Bible, the Bible will study you. 
and two things will happen. The Holy Spirit will affirm you and encourage you because say, look at the progress and the growth that you've made. And then he'll confront you. Here's an area we need to work on together where you need to say okay and yield to me and let me help you grow and be a little bit more like my son in this area. It'll do two things. When I study through the Sermon on the Mount, same thing. There's times I read it and I'm like, man, I feel the Holy Spirit telling me, look at where you were and where you're, you're, on, you're on a journey. Not that you're at the end, but you've made progress. You're on the 90th day of kindergarten here, son. <laughs> All right. But then there's other areas where I'm like, man, I've been resisting. I keep merging. I keep running over you in this area. Or I'm just, I ignore you in this area, Holy Spirit, and I know. And he's saying, okay, son, I've not brought that up to you until now, but now's the time. I want to I press in on this area of your life. Okay, I yield to you, Holy Spirit. I don't really want, there's a part of me that really doesn't want to, but I know the right thing is for me to yield. And so I know my right feelings will follow my right decisions, not the other way around. And so I'm going to, I'm going to yield. I'm going to say, okay, there's something I should be doing that I'm not. There's something that I, that I am doing that I need to stop, and I'm going to need your help to do it. That's what it looks like when you study the Bible. So you have a wise man who heard the sermon and puts into practice. And what is the practice the wise man puts in? He digs. I don't know much about building a house. Thank God. You should never live in a house that I built. Okay. I, I, I'm pretty good at Legos, real life stuff, not very good. But do you build a foundation, this much I know, do you f build a foundation on top of the ground? Have I lost you all? This is not hard. Do you build a foundation on top of the ground or do you excavate and dig below? You dig below. That's what Jesus is talking about here. You need to dig into what he's really saying here. And you need to remove some foundational ideas you might already have. We just need to move them out of the way. You need to move the sand out. And then we lay a foundation. The foundation's not the house. It's what's underneath the house. They both built a house. Both houses looked the same. But what the wise man did wasn't in the house. It was in the foundation. The other guy didn't build a foundation. Didn't dig anything out. Didn't think about it. Didn't dig deep. Didn't say, you know what, I really buy into what Jesus is saying here. Here's what the wise man says. He says, it doesn't matter what house I build. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter... At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what job I choose. doesn't matter who I marry. That's not, I shouldn't say it doesn't matter. It's not what's most important. It's not what's first. It doesn't matter what miracles I get or I don't get. It doesn't matter what blessing Jesus promises me. It doesn't matter if he holds up his end of the contract. Here's what I know. There is salvation available to me by grace, by faith. I deserve death. I deserve to be separated from God. But, but he's telling me that if I just accept his resume and I understand that I need salvation, that he'll save me. So I'm going to dig out all these ideas I have about myself, about perfectionism, about achievement, about materialism, about the after. I'm going to dig it all out. I'm going to lay this foundation that says everything I ever need and what I really need most, I can never do for myself. I can't achieve it, but Jesus has given it to me for free by grace. And my foundation for life is going to be the grace of God. That's what I've got. Then I can build on it anything that that foundation can support. And even if I have it, great. If I lose it, it will hurt, but I haven't lost everything. Other guy says, man, I heard it. That's good. That's good. Now that I've heard it, I can just build my life. Or, yeah, I've heard what he said, and I saw the miracles. I can build my life. The other thing similar to both of them, both of them dealt with wind. They dealt with rain. They dealt with floods. They dealt with catastrophe. They dealt with loss. It comes for all of us. 
Now, you can let it make you cynical or bitter or atheistic. But here's what Jesus is really saying. Each of those houses is going to be tested by things they don't think they deserve. They're going to deal with life circumstances that aren't the byproduct of their choices. They're just things in life that come against you that beat on you, that come from the bottom up and the top down. And in those moments, it will show you what your foundation is. I've walked with many of you through your storms, through your floods, through your rains. People who think they're built on the rock. You find out when the storms come. Because some of you have built your life on this idea that as a Christian, God will only give you the good you deserve and will always withhold from you the bad you don't think you deserve. That's not grace, that's performance. And what happens is, it's all well and good when you get every miracle and every prayer answered the way you want, but it's not so good when the good you think God owes you gets withheld or given to somebody else or you lose it. The promotion that you think you deserve, you get passed over for somebody else. The job you prayed for and you got gets downsized and outsourced and you lose that. That child you prayed for dies before you get to hold him or her. And we say, God, you must not be good because I don't understand why I deserved the bad you gave me. Or why I didn't qualify for the good you're withholding from me. And when those winds and those storms come, the house falls with a great, great crash because it wasn't built on the grace of God. It was built on God being a little bit other than he actually is. But so many of you have found, because I've watched you, when the winds have come and the storms have come, I haven't faced some of the storms y'all have faced. And I sat with, with some of you when you said, listen, I am not happy that I didn't get a miracle here. I don't understand it. I don't think like I deserve this. I feel like God's not, he's not, maybe, he, I can't trust this part about but apparently, my relationship with him doesn't depend on that. Because even in my frustration and in my confusion, I still love him, I still serve him, and I still have him. Because it's built on a foundation of God's grace is all that I need, and I still have that, even though part of my house is being beaten in right now. And what Jesus says is this, that's how you know if you're an authentic follower of Jesus. When the storms and the winds come and they beat on not the foundation, right? They beat on the house. Those things we've built on his foundation. If it survives without damage, praise God. If it gets, even if it gets beat down, you can rebuild on that foundation. Whether you have gain or loss, it doesn't impact your confidence that you are in him and he is in you because you've got the right foundation. So what does it mean to really know? That? How do I know I'm on my way to heaven? The simple test 
simple test. It's not really a test. It's just questions for you to answer. When you and the Holy Spirit butt heads over will, (laughs) over what he wants against what you want, is your heart's desire to yield to him? And is his lordship a reality in your life? Or is that just completely foreign and distant to you? When you sin, are you repentant, humbled? Do you come to him for forgiveness? Do you seek to learn and grow and to change? Or when you sin, do you just sweep it under the rug and treat it like it's not that big of a deal and rejoice into this freedom that you have that you can do whatever you want and it doesn't impact your salvation? Do you have a will that you've surrendered to God? Well, if you do, you've confessed that to him. Lord, I surrender my will to you. That's what lordship is. Have you surrendered your will to God? And are you still surrendering your will to God? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? If you wonder about this, you probably don't. I know I have a personal relationship with Jesus. How about you? Do you know that you know him? Yeah. And when it comes down to it, is your foundation built on God's grace? Or is it built on your performance and your house and your achievements and this idea of life should give to you what you think you deserve and withhold from you what you think you don't deserve? And that if God doesn't allow that equation to work out, do you throw it all away? Or do you recognize in your heart that, yes, when the winds come and the storms come and the waves come, it hurts and I question, there's times I get confused, but at the end of the day, my foundation is unshakable because through the grace of Christ that I stand. Let me close with a quote from John Stott. It's a little heady, but I think it summarizes this brilliantly, the end of the sermon. Neither an intellectual knowledge of him nor a verbal profession, though both are essential in themselves, can ever be a substitute for obedience. The question is not whether we say nice, polite, orthodox, enthusiastic things to or about Jesus, nor whether we hear his words listening, studying, pondering, and memorizing until our minds are stuffed with his teaching, but whether we do what we say and do what we know In other words, whether the lordship of Jesus, which we profess, is one of our life's major realities. Is Jesus' lordship a major reality for you? If your will's been surrendered to the Lord and you've confessed that to him, if you enjoy a personal relationship with Jesus, if you've grabbed on to grace and you understand that your salvation, your relationship with God is not guaranteed by your performance or your resume or even your your biblical acuity. All those things are important in and of themselves. If you grabbed on to that, and you know that in your heart, and you recognize that work of the Holy Spirit, you have nothing at all to worry about. You need to be at complete peace. If, however, your confession today is, Jesus' lordship is not a reality of my life, But now that I hear that again explained to me, or maybe the first time, I recognize in this moment, I want to know that I'm on my way to heaven. What do I need to understand, Pastor? Can you make it simple one more time? The answer is yes. Believe and repent. And some people have taken me to task. Why don't you say confess? It's not that I don't. But there's a step before confess, and that's believe. I don't want you to confess something you don't believe, because that doesn't do anything for anybody. Do you believe you need to be saved? 
Do you believe Jesus and only Jesus can save you? And do you believe? Are you deeply convinced that if you ask him to save you, he will? If the answer to those things are yes, then you confess that to Jesus. All you're doing is telling him what you really believe. And he knows that. But then I say repent. Because it's not just that we need a savior. We need a Lord. And I've talked, with this, uh, talked about this on Wednesday nights. Um, a lot of the people that Jesus tells stories about are people who would like a savior, but not so much a Lord. They want to negotiate it. They want to merge. They don't want to yield. They want to merge. Well, Jesus, I'll take the Savior part. Let's do this. I'll admit that I've sinned. And then you give me the grace and forgiveness. So that will allow me to continue my old old lifestyle without the guilt. Paul says, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. What I'm asking you about repenting is have you... Have you come to a place where you're changing your mind about how you think about lordship and you recognize you need a lord and that you should not be that lord? You recognize that Jesus is lord and because of that reality, your will needs to surrender to his. He comes first. We yield and surrender. If that's what's in your heart, just confess that to him and he will save you. That's been my experience and many of your experiences. Let's pray together. Team, will you come? Worship team, will you come? Heavenly Father, I, I pray on behalf of our, I come to you on behalf of your people this morning. What would you like us to do with what we heard today? How should we respond to this sermon? Maybe all of us in our or this moment right now, we can't recall the whole thing. In fact, I do feel you're probably drawing lots of us back into this sermon today and this week. That even though the pastor has finished the time we're devoting congregationally to studying the Sermon on the Mount this time through the Bible, maybe you're not done teaching us personally about the basic truths of being disciples of Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray in this moment that those in this room who feel they're not quite done in the conversation with you about this sermon. Lord, will you cement that in their heart in this moment? That they'll yield to that invitation from you to spend more time with you in this sermon that maybe they read through it again this week slowly, a few paragraphs at the time, devotionally, heart open, mind open with you. Jesus, I thank you for the assurance of salvation. I thank you that I don't have to be torn up or afraid that I slipped on a banana peel and I'm not going to heaven or that you're waiting to play a trick on me someday. You're letting me live life thinking I'm going to heaven and only only to pull the, the rug out from under my feet. Jesus, I thank you that that's not your intention. That you want us to just be able to be sure that we're saved because we're, we've surrendered our will to you. We know you for ourselves and we have a foundation of your grace, not our performance in our lives. It's very simple. And so I pray that you'll just release peace to every authentic disciple in this room right now. That they don't constantly feel that they're trying to earn their salvation or constantly feel that they're trying not to accidentally misplace it or lose it. If they can rest in the reality of your saving, ongoing work in life. You have saved us. You are saving us. You will save us. And we're on a journey of Christ-likeness that just looks like us surrendering our will to you by saying okay every day. For the 
few that might be listening today and say, I don't have that kind of assurance about my salvation. I'm not sure, but I want to know that I'm in right relationship with Jesus. I want to know him for myself. I want to understand this foundation of grace. I want, I want to surrender my will to the Lord. This is your moment. If you know you need to be saved and you know Jesus is the Lord and you know he can save you and he will save you, if you ask and you are ready to surrender your will to his, to step off of the throne of your life and invite him to sit in that place, this is your moment. If you believe that, just confess it to him and he will hear it. That's all you have to do. Just confess that to him. Just tell him, Jesus, you're the Lord. I'm not. I surrender to you. You can save me and only you can save me from my sin through your death on the cross, through your resurrection from the dead, your perfect life substituted for mine. I receive forgiveness today. I thank you. You're making me into a new person. And if I, Holy Spirit, come live in me. Teach my spirit to conform to yours and my will to align with yours. I do not plan to fail, but when I do, will you graciously bring it to me, to my attention? so that we can resolve those matters and you can grow me and you can change me and you can mold me. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me and you meant it, then Jesus heard it and you're saved. You don't have to worry or doubt or question it for one moment. I would encourage you, if you prayed that prayer with me and you're watching online, just type, just type it into the chat there with our moderator. Just say, I, I prayed that prayer with Pastor Phil today. If you're here live with us, just want to give you an opportunity to do something a bold, you don't, it's not a requirement, just a, an opportunity. Um, if you prayed that prayer with me today, um, I'm going to count to three. I'd love for you to just slip up your hand, make eye contact with me. You can put your hand back down. Just want to celebrate that moment with you. One, two, three. Who prayed with me this morning? Awesome. Thank you, brother. Who else? Praise you, Jesus. Thank you, man. Father, thank you. Thank you for being patient with us. I pray that nobody walks out of this room deceived today thinking that they have to earn their way into heaven. That no one walks out of this room thinking that you just wink at our sin today. No one walks out of this room thinking that we have to be 100% perfect in order to get into heaven. But that we have a clear understanding from your word. That you see a heart that is surrenders and recognize your lordship. People who have a personal walk with you. Who understand that all you want is to be with us. For us to be with you. To enjoy one another and to make you known. And that we build our life on Jesus. We don't add Jesus to our own building. And that it's the foundation that makes all the difference. In your name we pray. Amen. If you're willing. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.